2: Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
3: Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
4: Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Ann Wilson of Heart. Ann, how you doing? I'm doing great. Good to see you. Now, you say you're out in the country without giving us your address. Generally speaking, where are you? Northeast Florida,
0: close to St. Augustine, but way out in the country in a rural setting.
4: If you're from the Pacific Northwest, how did you end up in Florida with the humidity and which do you prefer? I prefer the Pacific Northwest
0: in the summer and fall. I prefer Florida in the spring <laughs> and winter, so... I guess that's kind of a snowbird
4: thing, isn't it, right? Right, but we're talking in July, so it doesn't quite make sense, right?
0: Yeah, I know, but I'm working right now. I can't just go visit where I want to visit, you know. Um, it's too hot here right now. It's too hot and
4: humid. Okay, so you say you're <laughs> working. What are you doing?
0: I'm um, getting ready to start setting up a new album that's going to come out first quarter of 22 and i'm getting ready to go out and do some more gigs and uh i'm just involved in all this new music and gigs and stuff
4: okay needless to say the music business has changed from when you started and it's hard for Boy, any it's hard for anybody to get recognition with their new recordings so what keeps you motivated
0: well i think what keeps me motivated now that everything's so different is uh kind of the same um impetus that got me going in the first place, which is just I had things to say and I had ideas that just keep banging around in my head and in my soul that I want to set to music It's it's hard to describe why musicians want to do it from the inside out, it's easy to understand why they might want to create an image and have fame and all that kind of stuff from the outside in but what makes you just scrape it together and go from zero to something, on your own, and that's that's really what I found since we've been in lockdown and all that kind of stuff. And the music business shut down. There's no money to be made, really,
4: you know. Okay, so so what motivates that creative process? You just lying in bed, something comes to you. What says, "Hey, I'm I want to start. I got to get my thoughts down."
0: I'm pretty emotional, and um, I guess. I am feisty, and so you put those two things together, and you you need an outlet, even though <laughs> nobody might be listening. It's a way to handle the energy and force of these emotions. Also, I come from a family that loves poetry and loves words. You know, my my father used to stand up after a few glasses of wine and recite poetry to the to the friends and family and stuff, and a tear would come down, and and uh, that's where I
4: come from. So that. I love words. I love to write. You say you're you you say you're emotional and feisty. Yeah. Since you lay that out there, how does that manifest itself? You, how do you describe yourself that way? What does it ultimately mean?
0: I guess it means I want my way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, and by that, I mean, I want to get these things down and physicalize them, bring them into the world, make them be. Do you usually get your way? Uh, I don't get it. My way all the time, but uh, when I do, it sure feels
4: good. It really, really does. <laughs> and how does it feel when you don't get your way?
0: Frustrating, totally frustrating. And it, it just makes me want to try harder to find another way to get it, you know. And in writing songs and making music and everything at this point, after all these years of doing it, it's interesting what I'm going through now because I'm working with much younger people, in the studio as players. And uh, some of them at the technical level are much younger. And so I feel kind of like in some cases, the wise old owl, not, not that I know everybody's business, but I have to teach everyone my business. They weren't around to understand what it was like at the beginning and the feelings that we tried to access at the beginning. You know, how
4: did you get hooked up with these younger people?
0: I was just looking for fresh input and players that were, trying to push the envelope out and level up and move forward, you know. And especially I was looking for people that weren't dying on the vine, who weren't just resting on their laurels. I was looking for an escape from riding the old horse down, you know, from getting into a cycle of just going out and playing the sheds and repeating and repeating until there's nothing left. I really didn't want to do
4: that. So how did you literally find these people? Oh, literally, just by asking around. So you're in Florida now. Where are you actually going to record the record? I recorded a few of the songs at Muscle Shoals, and a few of
0: them in Nashville, and a few of them in Seattle. And who's producing the record? Well, it's produced by me and by, mostly by me. I guess there's, like, there's no set producer Except for me, I'm where the buck stops
4: on this. And where do you find the money to record? In my pocket. <laughs> so it's your money. So in your idea, in your in your mind, what was the budget for how much you wanted to spend for this new project?
0: Oh God, I never thought of it that way. I just thought I'll pay as much as it takes to bring these ideas to fruition. And luckily I'm married to someone who really understands how to tighten the belt and, and uh cut costs, and do do things in a really smart way. So it wasn't the big old, lavish record recording experience of the past, of the 80s or 90s. You know, it was pretty close to the leather and, and lean. But I like the way it sounds.
4: Okay, so how far along are you in the project? Oh, I'm done recording. You're done? Yeah, yeah. So you said the record's not going to come out to the first, first quarter, Uh how is it going to come out? Is there a label you're going to do it yourself? And why wait till the first quarter?
0: Well, we're we're dangling it around to all the labels now. It's done. I just wanted to say, here it is. What do you think? It's the labels that want to wait until the first quarter because they need to have actual time to set it up. You know? you got to make a deal with one label. Maybe. I don't know. It, it just all depends on what they come back with. We only are um, showing it around like starting right now. So... I'm sure it'll take a while for them to go through their process where they go, let's see, do we hear a single? You know, (laughs) and if that's that old thing, you know, the Wednesday morning singles meeting, you know.
4: Absolutely. <laughs> are you okay? Since you talk, are you a student of the game? Are you the type of person who just makes the music and let the business people take care of it, or you know how the label works? You're talking to people. You're in the woods, in the weeds. Excuse me.
0: I don't think I'm in the weeds that much. I think that over the years I've gone in the weeds a little bit and been
4: frustrated. The question, but you're you said you <laughs> earlier you're a feisty person, and you know, yeah, uh, you scratch the itch and then sometimes things happen. The music, is the music similar to the music you've made before? Rock music or is it different? Oh, it's, it's rock music for sure.
0: And it's, it goes from, uh, soft emotional ballad all the way up to pretty out there balls out rock. You know, I mean, I've got this great band that is called the Amazing Dogs and they, they're just cooler than cool. Just so. Great players: Tony Lucido on bass and Tom Bukovac on guitar, and um, young guy from Seattle named Shanti Lane on drums, and Paul Moke on keyboards. I mean, they're they're really amazing. The rhythm section in particular, so good. So, how old are these guys? I think they're in their late thirties, mid forties. They're young,
4: yeah. When you refer- when you reference the seventies, whatever, they have any idea what you're talking about? They're fans of the the music they love barracuda for instance it's just
0: it's sick how much guys and bands younger guys and bands want to play barracuda they just want to play that song <laughs> and a few others like it magic man stuff like that
4: do you get tired of barracuda yeah so how do you co- how do you cope with that um well i don't know just it's only like 4 minutes long <laughs>
0: I like Barracuda. I think that the, the idea behind it is great. The, the heart version with Roger Fisher playing guitar was pretty iconic. So to me, it's, it's just trying to recapture the spirit of the song that makes it interesting to do now. Because okay. we don't have that Roger Fisher sound
4: now. And do you sometimes sing it and think about your laundry or what you're going to do after the gig, or are you always invested in singing it?
0: <laughs> no, I'm always invested. That's uh, that, that kind of splitting your attention is something that is a sin to me when you're up there on the mic.
4: Okay, and so you're doing this project independently, yet you still tour with heart. So how do you decide to do which one?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question because I... It's kind of just like the, re, re, the relationship between Nancy and I is good enough so we can, if she gets her thing done over here, I get mine done over here, we can just say, let's do this other thing. And we can do it in terms of our relationship. But it's, it's just, we want to do a heart tour when it really matters. We don't just want to waste it, you know. Who knows how many more years we have left with it. It's been together for nearly 50 years now. So,
4: you have a big birthday this year. How's that messing with your head? Well, yeah,
0: I had a 71 this year. Oh,
4: so, uh, so you know, I don't know. I had a couple of things. I got uh, leukemia 10 years ago. Then I knew I wouldn't re- live forever. Then I turned 60 and it really fucked me up. Uh, I'm not quite as old as you are, but I was wondering your perspective because one thing is for sure, we're not going to live forever.
0: Yeah, that's that's dang sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think 70 messed with my head and set me back on my heels. Like my, my bravado just wouldn't even take it. 70 was just one step too far. <laughs> but then I got over it and I just, I feel the same. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just 71. I didn't even feel because it's not one of those years
4: with a zero after it. 80 will be heavy. Right, I know. <laughs> really you know, <laughs> well, it's just you know. I think <laughs> Ringo is either eighty-one or eighty-two. Paul McCartney will be eighty. Hard to conceive. The other thing, yeah. Well, I mean, and there are people. Uh, Joe Walsh had a uh, was well, somebody else said. I said, I'm too old to die young. It used to be such a tragedy these rock stars would die. But if you die when you're eighty, people die when you're eighty. It's very yeah. weird that our generation <laughs> is going.
0: Yeah. Well, except, you know, 80s, the new 60,
4: I guess. So <laughs> I think internally that's true. We just haven't learned that physically in our bodies. Our bodies yeah. are not quite uh, there. I think that, that uh, the most challenging part of being
0: older in rock is just uh, trying to figure out how you can relate to the younger music that's coming out now because it's coming from people whose experience levels are so much different. And it's hard to get interested in somebody's song about their
4: boyfriend when you're 71, you know? So... I certainly understand that lyrically, but, you know, it's, it's interesting. I have the perspective that, uh, you know, our frame of reference with, I mean, was the Beatles, the British Invasion, San Francisco, etc. cetera but mariah carey came out 30 years ago a lot of people that's all they know is some diva they don't even know what we grew up with so it's hard hard to relate in general
0: it is and one of the things that's really hard to relate to for me is is the way of singing the human way of singing which is a way that is unaltered it's not tuned without a tune it's it, it's a human way of singing, like Janice saying, and like Jagger saying and stuff. Those human ways that are out of tune and imperfect and full of imperfection. Um, those are really, <laughs> that's, the, that's the stuff that's strange now in our time. It's so easy to hear Mariah Carey, but it isn't
4: easy to hear Mick Jagger, you know? It's our imperfections that make us lovable. Okay. That's right. Uh, you've cut a lot of Zeppelin songs. What's your favorite Zeppelin song? I think my favorite Zeppelin song is No Quarter. Really?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like No Quarter. Uh, I like the stuff from the Zeppelin 4 and Houses of the Holy era really a lot. I think they really hit some real diamonds in that that era so no quarter what else going to California um, see in my time of dying
4: yeah
0: God four sticks just some of those songs that are just a little bit more sophisticated but still just down you know I like I love that stuff the, they get kind of tricky like on the crunch and um, they show that their their intelligence but their insanity at the same time I like that.
4: How did you discover Led Zeppelin?
0: Mm, well, my best friend in high school uh, got a whole. She turned me on to Led Zeppelin uh, when Whole Lot of Love came out, and it's one of those deals where we're high school girls, you know, sitting in her room listening to Plant do Whole Lot of Love, and just our minds going crazy and what does this mean? You know, way down inside, you need it. And we're like, what? But you can't look away from that when you're 17 or 18 or something. That's how I got turned on to
4: Zeppelin. Well, you know, certainly on uh, that album, uh, they have the lemon song and a lot of sexual references. Were you, were you a, were you a fast girl or were you naive?
0: I was super naive. And I remember too well going to a Led Zeppelin concert in Seattle at the uh, Green Lake Aqua Theater. I think it was 1969 or eight. And so, um, with Nancy and the two of us sat there listening to Led Zeppelin and the Lemon Song and all this stuff. And by the time the Lemon Song was half half over, I was h- headed to the car because it was just too much for me. It was like, this is too much for me to comprehend. <laughs> I don't know whether this is dirty or whether it's incredible or what.
4: Okay, needless to say, they say sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Uh, you were singing, how did the sex part end up you know, being awakened? By real life, you know, by just
0: the the lovers that I had and the experiences, especially when I got into um, road life with the band and I was old enough to be in a relationship of my own that was full-fledged, you know, real relationship, plus being on the road with all these dudes all the time. That's where I got my education, I think. I mean, long before Nancy joined the band, it was just me and a whole bunch of men in vans, in buses, you know. So, uh,
4: yeah, I guess I learned quick. But uh, didn't you have Roger Fisher as a boyfriend through most of that? Nancy had a boyfriend named Roger Fisher. Oh, excuse me. you uh, His brother, Michael Fisher. Weren't you involved with uh, his brother? Right.
0: Yes, I was. Yeah, and we were uh together from about uh 72 to about 79. And uh yeah, he he taught me everything I know. <laughs> and do you ever talk to him now? Occasionally we'll will connect on um line. I've he actually after we broke up, he went on to have like 11 children with various other mayors and yeah, (laughs) and uh, a couple of times I've reached out to him to ask him advice on
4: parenting. (laughs) Anyway, but no, we don't really hang out or anything. So, uh, when did you know you wanted to sing as a career? Right off the bat, probably when I was 15.
0: It just, it was one of those things like in Close Encounters where He's making the mountain out of mashed potatoes and he doesn't know why. He just is drawn to making this mountain out of mashed potatoes. That's what it was for me in music. It's just like, I just, that's, I just knew that's what I was going to do. Nothing else was even a possibility. Not boyfriends, not
4: nothing. Okay. What, what led up to that? I mean, were you turned on by the Beatles or were you a music head before that? What inspired you? To this life?
0: Um, I started out by loving classical music and playing an orchestra with the flute and um, I come from a musical family, classical music opera, all that stuff always playing and so one thing just kind of led to the next uh, I started just like singing along in the family and then feeling the urge to sing in front of people, the family, and then church group, and then whoever would listen. And it just kept
4: growing exponentially. Okay, were you known as the singer growing up? Well, that, that's the girl with the amazing voice. I didn't discover I had a voice until
0: about 70, uh, when I was up in Vancouver, about 74. That's when I discovered I had a voice. Up until then, I was playing in bands, but I was just like the chick in the band. Who would sing the ballad, you know, like she'd sing Superstar or by the time I get to Phoenix or something like that. And then, uh, and then bang a tambourine while the guys did all the rock. We were trying to work out, uh, some Zeppelin songs back in the early days, and none of the guys in the band could sing that high. So it yeah. fell to me. And that's when I discovered that I could sing rock.
4: So you were just you were you were playing the tambourine singing backup vocals and an occasional lead
0: and the and the cowbell and um things like claves and
4: <laughs> i mean what did you see as where you were going was this just another step down the road or you said holy shit you know something's got to change here
0: well i didn't have a view of what i was doing from the outside i only felt that i wanted to keep pushing up and so, uh, you know, I I just found different guys to be in a band with who would like schlep the gear into the next club and then we'd get a, like we'd play there for a week and then somebody would come in and go, wow, we like this. We, we like the chick. How about this club? And a little bit better of a place. You know how it goes. Step up, step up, step up until you finally get some kind of really cool offer where they say... Okay, um, Rod Stewart was going to play in Montreal at the Forum, but, um, the, the opening band got sick, so you can open up for Rod Stewart if you want for one night. <laughs> and then one thing leads to another.
1: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
3: Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like, literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear.
4: Okay, going back before that, did you play in bands in high school?
0: Yes, I did. I started when I was a sophomore in high school just trying to just stitch it together with whoever I could find who either had a car or had a guitar or a shirt with a high boy
4: collar or something like that, you know. Did you have bands that would work during high school that got paid to work? No, nope.
0: I don't think that I ever got paid. To play in a band really until we were up in Vancouver and we were able to maybe make 10 bucks each a week because we lived in a, um, in a communal situation. So we'd take all the money the band would make and we'd split it all up between the band members and their wives and stuff. So you'd end up with 10 bucks a week. Um, but that was pay, you know, that would have been 74, 75.
4: Okay, so you when you were in school, were you a good student, bad student? Were you popular or not popular? I was not popular, and I was a m- mediocre
0: student. I excelled in art and music and English class. All the humanities were easy for me. Um, but still, I only got C's, you know. I graduated with a 2.5 or 6 or something like that. Nothing to write home about.
4: I was interested in music. Okay, so you graduated from high school. Did you ever get education beyond that point? Or did you say, I'm just going to be a musician?
0: I went to, out of high school, I went to art college in Seattle. And then after that, I um, went into bands. So, you know, it didn't take long for me to go from school to being in a band for a living.
4: How long did you go to school for?
0: Uh, I went to art college for two years after
4: high school. Okay. And when you leave art school and start in bands, where are you living?
0: Well, I was still living with my parents, mooching off my parents, you know. Uh, but then when I met Michael Fisher, which was right then, after art school, I went away to Canada and... um the rest is just heart history.
4: Whoa, whoa, whoa! A little bit slower. How'd you meet him, and how'd you end up in Vancouver?
0: Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, the band I was in at the time was called. Um, it was with Roger Fisher and Steve Fossen. Oh um, well, yeah, it was called Hocus Pocus, and we were we we got a gig at this club in Bellingham, Washington called the Iron Bull where we were the house band. We were playing there for two weeks, I think. And um, Michael Fisher, the brother of Roger Fisher, who was in my band, was a draft evader and he was living up in Vancouver, BC. He snuck down over the border to Bellingham to see his brother's band. And he spotted this chick singer who was sitting cross-legged on the dance floor smoking a cigarette. And um, she spotted him, and their eyes just went lock, and uh, that's how it started. And, and I couldn't not be with him, and he just kept coming down to see me. And finally, we got together as a couple, and I left the band, went up to Vancouver. That lasted about six months before the the band chased me up there, and we formed the band up in Vancouver. So Michael and I probably had about six months as a couple in romance up in Vancouver before the band came and
4: joined. For someone who was so driven in music, it seemed like you abandoned it for six months. What was going through your head? Love is pretty powerful. I mean, when it's, when it's like that, you know, when it's,
0: I couldn't see anything else. And that's really saying something because I, like you say, I always have been pretty driven about making the band, keeping it together, keep feeding it, being in it, you know? Um, yeah. So that that love just kind of washed everything else away for six months. Now, it was a different era,
4: but did you want to
0: get yeah. married? Nope, I didn't think about getting married then. Uh, we were just Yeah, it was a hugely different era. It was the era of Joni Mitchell saying, we don't need no piece of paper from the city hall, keeping us tight and true, you know. And I think that Michael and I really bought into that.
4: Okay, so this was, you know, it's also unlike today, everybody's got cable TV, everybody's got the internet, there really is no flyover country. But at that point, In the early 70s, how different was Vancouver from Washington? Oh,
0: it was hugely different. Vancouver was a really international, cosmopolitan city, small, but very sophisticated. And um, coming into Vancouver, I remember in the springtime during the Easter Be-In they used to have in Stanley Park, it was just magic. Seattle seemed like a real kind of a cowboy town next to Vancouver, I remember. Vancouver was very um, full of artists, and um, it didn't have that, that American nationalism that was very bothersome at the time.
4: And so the band follows you up with what intention? To put the band back together.
0: I think that they realized that we had something, as long as I was in it, they we had something special. And Michael Fisher was a really smart kind of um, entrepreneurial type guy. I mean, he got the whole concept of how to manage a band, what needed to happen. He, he and his brother would get out there in the sun with their shirts off and build the speaker cabinets. And um, it was very hands-on. And we all lived together in this little one-room house for a short time and really built the, the band up from nothing in kind of a f- um, communal, f- tribal way.
4: And what was the gig situation there? Oh, it was just... At that time, Vancouver
0: had two booking agencies Bruce Allen and Access, which was the more indie type one. And um, we couldn't get any gigs. You know, nobody knew us. We were just some band until we finally decided to pull a demo together and we took it to Bruce Allen, who was the big booking agent there in town. And he passed on heart. So we went to the other... Uh, indie and they said okay so we went with them he got us our first gig at this place called the cave in downtown vancouver which was made to look like it had stalactites and stalagmites inside (laughs) and it was all dark and it looked like a real cave you know that was where our first gig was and then how often did you work thereafter we probably worked there. Um, God, a couple of different stints, maybe a weekend at a time, and then we started getting gigs playing high school dances and um, and different bars around Vancouver and New Westminster and that area. So we just started stepping it up. Things started coming to us.
4: And were these originals or covers?
0: Oh, they were all covers until we started trying to slip these songs like Crazy on You and these new originals like Crazy on You and Magic Man and stuff into the set. And the bar audience would, they'd wait through this new Crazy on You song until we could get back to the Deep Purple and the Rolling Stones and the Led Zeppelin stuff. (laughs) I just remember them just politely waiting through us, banging through Crazy and... uh, (laughs) until it was over, and then
4: it's like, okay, now let the fun resume. Okay, so when did you start writing songs, and how did you write Crazy On You and Magic Man?
0: Started writing Crazy On You and Magic Man uh, for the Dreamboat Annie album, which was up in Vancouver. All the songs were written in Vancouver, about 73, 73 through 75 and, um, yeah, just started, uh, we were writing and playing and traveling all at the same time. So we'd, we'd write a song on the bus during the day and try to fit in it at night. Sometimes it would
4: work, sometimes it wouldn't. And literally, how did Crazy On You develop?
0: Um, Nancy and Roger and Michael and I were living in a house in Point Roberts, Washington, and um, let's see, and Nancy was sick with the flu, and I had come up with these words, all the words of crazy on you, and so I was really excited about him, so I went into her sickbed, and I went, God, you got to check these out. Poor Nancy, you know, she had a high fever and everything, and I made her sit up and listen to these words and then she got excited too. And we said, well, what shall we do for the guitar part? It should be an acoustic song. And so then we said, well, what would Justin Hayward do on the acoustic? And that's that's how we arrived at the acoustic part for Crazy on You. And uh Magic Man was a I guess a like a leaving home song when I moved up to Vancouver and my mother was just really against me moving, not only out of the country, but moving in with a man. And she didn't know if I was just going to end up barefoot and pregnant. or You know, that was before Roe v. Wade. And mothers were extremely, um a lot more Victorian with their daughters then. Uh, uh, there was no attitude like, oh, honey, just go ahead. Just, you know, keep your dignity. They, they were like, no, you don't you don't go there with him. You just don't do that. So it was a whole different era. So, so magic man was about this thing that went between my mother and I, when I was going to move in with Michael.
4: Okay. Were those songs just spontaneous or were you writing them specifically for an album?
0: They were spontaneous. All the songs on dreamboat Annie were spontaneous. Um, there wasn't really an idea to make an album. Uh we were playing most of the song the songs that would translate to a live situation. We were playing in clubs, and Mike Flicker came and heard us play these songs. Thought that he liked the way I sang and he liked the way at that point the way Nancy played. She was sitting in with us sometimes. She'd come up from college in Forest Grove. And uh, he liked that combo. And, and so that's when the idea was hatched for us to make an album. But it wasn't until, you know, pretty late. The
4: songs were already in existence. Did you already have a desire? I mean, were you somebody who was a teenager say, man, I'm going to make it. I'm going to be famous.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And back then in my young 20s mind, it was like, you know, what I want is I want the glory. I didn't think about money. I thought about I wanted to be to get up there and feel the power and did
4: reality live up to the dream
0: at some moments i think it did um i think it would depend on which era you're talking about and which kind of drugs were involved or not involved you know because you know some of those eras that were big party eras and wild crazy rock star eras, the ego might be a little bit more inflated than other times. So the glory might be more powerful than other times. But yeah, I think I felt all different kinds of being rapturous at being in it or just going like, boy, this sucks, you know, all different levels of all that.
4: And you mentioned the drugs. Was that something you got into more as part of the rock star lifestyle or were you an experimenter at an earlier age
0: i was an experimenter with lsd before i went into bands um seriously and but then in the rock star life as the years rolled on the drugs changed and they did different things to your perception of course like uh you know cocaine is no lsd it's it's a whole different numb world you know um but I was mostly just doing it out of, because back then, the glorious thing was to be the fabulous disaster, right? Everyone wanted to be Keith Richards or some kind of version of, you know, Anita Pallenberg or something. <laughs> and so, uh, but the trick was to stay alive and not lose it and um, keep, your, keep your, sh- your clothes on and your shreds around you of intelligence so you can keep on doing this thing. And make it be good, you know.
4: So how did you take LSD the first time and how old were you? Mm,
0: I was 17. I had a friend who was going to University of Washington and she was living in the dorm and, uh, I was in art school at the time. So I must, I must have been 18. So I was in art school on Capitol Hill in Seattle. And she was at the U of Dub. And so I just went over there from school one time to her dorm room. And uh, she had this acid. And we, we only had one album to listen to. And it was Bookends by Simon and Garfunkel. And so we dropped acid and stayed in her room for 24 hours just looping this record. And at some point, I think we may have snuck down the hall to buy some hostess Pies out of the vending machine and get some water. But, but other than that, it was just, that was my first acid trip and that album supported the whole thing. No problem. It was really, really amazing. I'll, I'll never forget it. Can you listen to that <laughs> album now?
4: Yeah. Yeah. I can. So what were the, what were the great insights of your first acid trip? The visual
0: ones were were subtle, but I won't forget them. And it—it it, it was just seeing the complementary neon colors lining every um, sharp edge. If you would look up at a at the windowsill or something, there'd be this neon green and neon purple just lining the windowsill. I remember that. The other, um, more important things I took from it were just. The way music was, it was so much more than just auditory. It was just, there was this soul inside the way each song was written lyrically and just the, the character of each instrument and the colors that it all created. Um, you could almost taste it. It was just, all the senses just bled together, I think. And and like saved the life of my child, you know, just imagine
4: that. (laughs) <laughs> yes with all the sounds yeah. in the backgrounds the other thing on yeah. that wreck the other thing on the wreck which i quote to all my friends i'm not quite there yet you know, how terribly strange to be 70
0: oh god yeah 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 and the uh the voices
4: of old people oh yeah but the other thing is is that america that encapsulated something that was something you did in the 60s and 70s you got in your car and you look people don't even do that anymore You know, they'll fly somewhere, but that whole experience of anonymity, discovering the country, the world, passe.
0: Yep. Like uh, being on a bus or a train
4: or something. Right. So, you had a good experience. How often did you do LSD after that? Well, after that, I
0: did it every chance I could. Um, Probably had probably another... I don't know dozen trips or something with Nancy and with Sue and us with my sister Lynn and her commune every chance I could I think I even had a couple by myself um but I was never a person who wanted to go out and climb trees or and stuff like that I always wanted to be inside in a controlled situation with the music I wanted to listen to it was about it was all about music for me um with the music I wanted to listen to ready to go so I the all the loose ends tied up nobody's gonna come over no one's gonna call you know so you don't have to deal with the outside world just I just wanted to dive into music as far as I could and did you ever have a bad trip once yeah and it was because I didn't get the loose ends tied up and uh I was over with Nancy at Sue Annis's house. Sue's parents were gone um, somewhere on vacation. So we had the house and um, we took this opportunity and I, I neglected to tell my parents that Nancy and I were going to spend the night over there. We just went, you know, like sometimes young people will just do that. And so... We dropped the acid. It was orange sunshine. I was supposed to be at band practice. Nancy was supposed to be home. So so first the guys at band practice started calling the house and saying, where's Ann? She didn't show up. We can't find her. We're worried about her. And then, so my mom would say, oh, I don't know. She's not here. And then pretty soon Nancy didn't come home. So my mom is going, where's Nancy? Where's Anne?" Right. And so she, figured out we were probably at best friend Sue's house. So she started calling up there and the phone kept ringing and we kept pretending we didn't hear it. And finally my mom just got in the car and came over and banged on the door. And um, Nancy and Sue hid upstairs in the bedroom. And because we're in the middle of this, we're in another universe, you know, we can't deal with a angry mother at that time. But I went downstairs, I answered the door she pulled me out into her car and confronted me. Are you high? You know, look at you. You're high, right? And I'm like, oh no, I'm not high. You know, like. And uh, she let me have it, you know, across the face once, and and then she kind of shoved me out of the car and said, "Okay, go back to it. You can go to hell. Tell Nancy to go there too." And then she backed out knocked over all the trash cans in the street and took off. And I went back in the house and the whole rest of the trip, Nancy and Sue and I were just in hell. It was like, we could not come back from that. You know, that was a bad trip. So what music did you like to listen to? At that point, we were listening to Moody Blues, uh, In Search of a Lost Card, the White Album, Sergeant Pepper, and possibly uh, maybe the first Elton John album, and that's that's pretty much what it was. You know, I can't remember if there was anything else, but you know, you could listen to the White Album on acid, and it's like an hour plus long, and that's a that's a universe of time. <laughs> and then you might listen to it again.
4: You know, and is In Search of the Lost Chord your favorite Moody Blues album?
0: At this time, I think maybe Days of Future Past is again. But those two, I think, are my favorite.
4: They've just really hit on something right then, you know? Timothy Leary and all the other things. But uh, I went back to that. At this point, it's the one I listen to most. So, you're in Vancouver. What was your relationship with uh, with Nancy and how did she fit into your band's before you moved to Vancouver?
0: Um, She wasn't in the bands I was in before I moved to Vancouver. She was still in high school. And uh, then after that, she went to university in Oregon. And she was serious about spending some time in college. And I wasn't. So I was just already out in this band life. And we were driving to Montana, um, Idaho, up into S- Saskatchewan, and just ranging out in this, these gigs with the band I was in, and she was not involved. Finally, because she and I had been so tight uh, growing up and learning how to play guitars together and singing together, um, I really wanted to to enrich Heart, or Hoaxpocus. Pocus, I mean, the band I was in with more ability to play acoustic guitar, more ability for backup harmonies, uh, because we had settled into, Hocus Pocus had settled into this sort of bar band uh, mentality with just like maybe two-part harmonies tops. Um, every song was kind of on a Johnny B. Good level, you know, like nothing really sophisticated was coming out of that band. Um, Steve Fossen singing suffragette city and stuff like that and and it was okay but it wasn't going to go anywhere you know it was just going to end up being in bars forever so i started asking nancy to come up and visit us in vancouver and sit in and provide her acoustic and provide some more harmony singing which she did she was really shy She, she didn't really enjoy it you know but it sure made the band sound better on that level and then um one thing led to another. Pretty soon we started writing those songs. She and Roger Fisher got together. And the two Wilson sisters and two Fisher brothers became a family living group. And uh, she left college and moved up. And that's when um, Mike Flicker had discovered us playing in a club called Starvin Marvin's and said, well, come on down and let's demo you guys so we went in first without nancy and he passed then we went in again a year later with nancy and he liked the two sisters thing you know and so that was kind of a an extra added um schmaltzy thing that worked for him and so uh, mushroom scientist on the basis of it be me, Nancy, and Roger. And we made Dreamboat Annie.
4: Okay. I have two sisters, an older sister and a younger sister. They can be lovey-dovey. They can be at each other's throats calling me, bitching about the other one. What's it like being in a band with your sister? Boy, there's
0: no one way that it's like. Um, Sometimes it's just great because you come from a common stem, you know, and you know, uh, you've got like a language together and all that where you can finish each other's sentences. But also along with that, you have this incredibly complex um, setup of buttons you can push to upset each other or, or, <laughs> you know, just little tiny little throwaway comments that just hurt like hell or shut you down or you can do the same thing for them. So it's equally as good as it is bad. Uh, it's tricky. But Nancy and I managed to make it be mostly good for years, as long as it was just she and I. But when other people came into our lives, it got more and more and more tricky because we started to grow up and have our, you know, come into our own to separate. Like people used to treat us like we were joined at the hip. And I guess we kind of were. But the minute we separated um, that's when things got good and things got super hard
4: and what's the status of it today
0: well it's she's doing she, uh, she just released an album a solo album you probably know and um, we've both been doing our solo things but in 2019 before the lockdown we did a heart tour that was the most Satisfying and successful commercial tour to Hearts done in a long time. Um, so we can do that whenever we want, and our relationship will take it. Like things that have happened in the past are, we've come to the point where we've let the air out of them, and when we want to get together and make music, we can do it. You know, without it being all negative and personal and stuff. I mean, we're. She's a good, great musician. I really like her. She's an original. She can do stuff. Um, and she gets me. We just have to really watch out for the sibling pitfalls, you know. And I know you know what I mean. Oops, because you were talking about your sisters.
4: Right. You know. So... Let's just say you're not on the road, you're not preparing or doing a hard tour. How much contact do you have? If any. Mm.
0: Yeah, we have some, but not that much. It's mostly birthdays and, and you know, if something happens in the family or just something that made us think of the other one, we'll go, hey, I saw this and I thought of you, you know. Uh, after 45 years of living in each other's pockets, it's kind of, refreshing to be an adult a completely separate adult um and it really has helped me with my writing and my um own agenda of just doing things my way you know which is what I was doing before she joined the band so
1: yeah (laughs) savings products insured by ncua investment products are not insured not obligations of navy federal and may lose value rain or shine
3: every day is a great day for fishing right you got rain gear but you can't overlook sunny day gear a columbia pfg solar stream elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days like literally i mean who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish but why do it if you don't have to So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear.
4: So, you go into the studio with Mike Flicker. How long does it take to cut Dreamboat Annie and how different are the songs from how you were playing them live and were you happy? Um, let's see. How long did it take to make the record?
0: I'm trying to remember, I think it wasn't as long as we usually take now. It was probably a month or a month and a half tops. Um, because we'd been out there playing the songs live. So the songs were already road tested. Some of them sounded much better on the record than they did live because, for instance, the song crazy on you, we didn't ha- have a drummer that we liked enough to use in the studio. So on the song crazy on you, it's the drum part is a series of Edits That Mike Flicker did Very cleverly And you can't even tell That it's not being played all the way through But I remember how complicated that one track was The drummer we were using live Just wasn't up to it So we got this guy Kat, uh, Hendrix In To play and He was like a jazz player almost And he played on Crazy um, So it sounded better On record than live same with Magic Man boy you should have heard the demo i came in with for magic man it was the groove that we were playing live was more like like the old indian thing of do 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 you know and then in the studio that evolved to do 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 you know um, and songs like how deep it goes and hear song and all that were my romantic love songs, you know, that I wrote just on my acoustic. So from that little demo, the songs just opened up into like full band productions. So they really did come alive a lot on that record. And there was a third part to your question. Was I happy?
4: Yet, When it was all done, were you satisfied or do you felt like you missed it a little bit or didn't sound like it was in your head? No, I was thrilled.
0: I was just like over the moon and the, Experience in particular of singing the uh, lead vocal on Crazy on You is something I'll never forget because this first time I'd ever opened up and sung in a studio with a big mic and everything and Mike Flicker there producing me and coaching me and drawing me out, you know, and I just, I just remembered what that felt like to, to sort of arrive at that, you know, it was like a revelation
4: Well, you said earlier that you've learned that you could sing in 74. Was that when you were cutting the record or was it before? It was slightly before. It was live when I started.
0: We used to do this Led Zeppelin medley in bars that was, you know, 25 minutes long and just one song into the next. That's when I realized that rock was really a blast to sing. Sing loud and high and I could sing Aretha and I could sing... Um, Ian Gillen from Deep Purple and all that kind of stuff. And what was wild about that too is that it's back then it was a woman singing it and no one else was doing that. So the audiences were like, yeah. That was something that really caught their imagination.
4: Okay. How long after you cut the album does it come out? And when do you realize something's starting to happen in terms of airplay and sales? Mushroom Records was a
0: small little indie label in Vancouver. And they it was all this little in-house staff, very small operation. And we got through with the record. It was released on Valentine's Day, 1975, I think. And by summer, we were out on tour Supporting it and riding around in the back of Nancy and I, were riding around in the back of a car, being driven by Shelley Siegel, who was the um, the publicist at Mushroom, and we did this coal miner's daughter thing with him, where he drove us to the record stations. I mean, the radio stations, and we'd go in and sit down and go, "Hi, we're the girls from Heart," and uh, and then the. The Jock would play our song and we'd talk a little bit, and then we'd leave, and Shelley would slap down like a grandma blow and get him a hooker later. It was that old 70s kind of payola deal. So we did that within a couple of months with the record being done. And that kind of got the radio play going, and, the, and then once it was being played, then people started calling in, and different part of the country, parts of the country opened up at different rates. It was interesting. You'd think it'd be the glamorous part of the countries like New York and LA, but they were the last to like heart. The places that came to us first were St. Louis and uh, Atlanta and Detroit and Cleveland, you know, places like that, Chicago, the ones that were where people are more down, that they like their rock, you know,
4: and when was the first time you heard it on the radio?
0: Oh, um, first song I heard on the radio was Magic Man, and it was uh I was it was probably uh a month after we got done recording. And I was coming back from the grocery store with my dog in the back of the car, and I had the radio on, and here comes well, first it's like Captain and Tennille, you know, love will keep us together, and then the next song is Magic Man. And I, I had to pull over and freak, and freak out, you know, because <laughs> it was so cool. It's so surreal. The first time you hear that, it's, it, it breaks this kind of little hymen in your brain of, of yourself image. It breaks it all down. So you're just like, whoa, here's me and that's me. You know, you have to, learn how to accept that it's one. I don't know if that makes any sense, but...
4: No, absolutely. But how is your self-image? How was it before? Could you embrace success? Did you feel you weren't worthy? You're getting the attention. So what was it like being inside you? I always thought that I was worthy. I never felt that I was the shit.
0: Like, because I knew I was learning. I was still... Uh, worshiping at the knees of my idols like Plant and Ian Gillen and Elton John and the, Rod Stewart, the various people that I liked as singers at, at that time. And I guess that, you know, all I could hear was someday I'll be able to sing that great, you know. I didn't have any sense of trying to sing like a woman or sing like a man. I just
4: wanted to sing like a soul you know so summer of 75 the band really explodes you know i was traveling in the west and you know not the metropolis and you heard the records everywhere before i came ultimately to la so could you feel that and the album was as successful as any other album that summer and you're on this little independent label out of vancouver did you realize it was going
0: well it didn't really go as quick as we wanted it to because we weren't able to come down to the States to tour yet because Michael Fisher was wanted for a draft evasion. Um, it was that summer, I think, that he realized that he had to go get that straightened out so the. He could come down with us as the band's manager to the States and we could open up down here, you know. Um, so we didn't really get a feeling for what it was like to drive around in America and hear our record. We only knew Canada at that point. But then once we were okay to come down here, it seemed like it was everywhere, especially Crazy on You was the first single, I think. And then Magic Man came after that. And we couldn't get it played. (laughs) This is funny. It took us a while to get Magic Man to really hit because it was long. And back then, to really hit, you had to be played on AM radio. And the songs couldn't be any longer than, say, three minutes and 15 or 20. And so finally, somebody, I don't exactly know how this went down, but somebody did an edit that was the right length, and they put that on AM radio, and then all hell broke
4: loose. We were an FM band up until then. All hell breaks loose. How does it change you in the band and the situation? Well,
0: we start getting these really amazing gig offers like Cal Jam 2. and, And, you know, it's just so funny what happens when all of a sudden your song is on the radio and everyone just thinks that you've taken this gigantic leap up into their view as some kind of mythological creature. Um so yeah we started getting really good gig offers to, to warm up for Jefferson Starship and I guess it was Airplane at first and then just about everybody BG's all the bands that were huge then we started getting offers to warm up for them and get on, getting on these big stages and just it, it just grew it just started to inhale
4: and did you interior on your interior level want to say okay I'm going to blow I'm going to win over the audience who frequently doesn't pay attention to the opening act and I'm going to blow the headliner off the stage right
0: Right. well I never held the headliner any ill will but yeah I wanted to go out there and just blow everybody away and especially when you go out there and maybe it's still light out and people are filing in that's hard that's hard and I think about that now with opening acts you know like especially when you're playing sheds and it's 6 o'clock at night or 7 o'clock at night still light it's hot and everything the sun's on the stage some poor openers out there just sweating away trying to just get them off so I always try to be nice to them you know give them whatever they need because that's a that's a hard place to be in but um yeah back then it was mostly indoors we didn't play the whole shed live nation shed thing didn't exist then so we got we came up playing inside arenas mostly and some outdoor
4: so now you have this level of success you're somebody from Seattle which was not a hotbed they had the kingsmen then ultimately the grunge era but you were between that you were in Vancouver it was a different country Suddenly you have yeah. this international success. You, you start meeting all your heroes. What's that like? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it didn't take long to realize
0: that they're where the myth stops and the person starts, you know, when you start meeting people. And but still, the thrill was not gone. You know, meeting Elton John was just so over the top amazing. Um Freddie Mercury, Brian, all those guys, all the different people we met. We opened up for Nazareth overseas and I was a huge fan of them. Um, oh, Grace Slick. Just all the different people who I'd looked up to when I was a little kid. Um, I mean, not even that little, just the five years before, you know. Uh That was really... Eye opening, life changing stuff. And it changes you because all of a sudden they're looking at you, talking to you as if you're an equal. And, um, you, I rapidly lost the thing of not worthy, not worthy. You know, I felt like, well, maybe these are like dots. Maybe they're people that understand how I feel. And it, it is true. I came to the feeling that there's, there's definitely a type of alien being that does this for a living and especially if you have the drive and the push to take it all the way you've got to be a certain kind of animal and so when you meet those animals you recognize each other sometimes you know
4: other than elton john who lived up to the rep plant i think robert plant um i met jagger
0: and he was just as much of a princess as I thought he would be. We opened up for the Stones at uh, in Boulder, Colorado on their huge tour with the pink stage that raked down, you know, the lips and tongue thing. Right. And um it, they just had shuttles going from the hotel to the gig. And Michael and I were standing down there waiting for a shuttle to take us over there. And Jagger comes down to get the shuttle and he grabs the first shuttle and doesn't want anybody else in the car with him because it'll wrinkle his trousers, right? And so I went, yeah, okay, he got it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, I thought Brian May was an incredible, intelligent person and a gentleman. Um, John Paul Jones, same thing. Uh, Just there are so many of them, you know, I thought grace slick was she was probably one of the wildest aliens I've met, so did you like the grind of the road? I did, yeah, I was good with it when you're in your mid twenties, even later twenties it's it's no big deal, you know I mean you recover from from the travel you can you you're just much more rough and tumble you know, and uh the hours and the All the different modes of transportation, like especially over in Europe, it's not, uh, the tour bus thing is not as developed as it was over here. So you're on trains and, and vans and stuff like that, you know, and especially over in Europe back then, rock was just such a new thing. Rock shows were, it wasn't anything like it is now, you know, as you will know. And so you'd go in and you'd play these weird places. Like I remember we had a gig in Belgium that where it was just this creepy little old mildewy theater with Nazareth. And they put us in a hotel that all the lampshades were torn and there was trash all over the floor and dirty sheets and stuff. And I was, it scared the shit out of me because I was just a little girl from Bellevue, you know, where everything was fine. And (laughs) it was a big learning
4: experience in lots of those places. Needless to say, in the last five years, we've had Me Too awareness in America. But you were one of only a handful of successful female rock stars at the time. In addition, you were the front person. What was that like? Yeah, um, it
0: was kind of like being being from another planet because no one really knew how to treat you, where to put you. If you were a folk singer or a disco diva, they would have known, but being a rock singer, they just automatically pegged me as, is this wild kind of like a nymphomaniac, um, uh, crazy drunk, just wild thing, you know? And that really wasn't what I was like. Um, so, yeah, there was a real stereotype that was like an instantaneous made up stereotype that was placed on me. And Nancy, too, to a lesser degree, because she's she's blonde and fair and, and a little bit more delicate physically and everything. So they just saw me and went, now there's a rock bitch, you know, <laughs> and that I really didn't measure up, want to measure up to that inside my own self.
4: Well, I'm sure you had some bad experiences as a result of people's perceptions and their aggressiveness.
0: Yeah, but I weathered that. I weathered it because I didn't take it seriously. Um, I just kind of had an attitude like, well, they don't know, you know. The band I'm with takes me seriously. And what really matters is what I do when I get up there. I kind of think I had a sense that I was instrumental in changing a perception of what women could be and do in music.
4: I was one of the few that were doing that. Okay. You have the legal situation with Mushroom. You end up on Portrait, which is basically Epic, part of CBS Records at the time. What was different about that? Well, it was different in that, like, all of a
0: sudden things got big. You know, it was just, you went to New York to the Black Rock, you know, and and, uh, you, you hung out at a, in a penthouse at a champagne cocktail party with Slim Whitman. You know, it it just got automatically huge. And you met Yoko Ono and you met Bob Gruen and it got big, fast. Um, Very breathless, cool time, for sure. Uh, And just,
4: they made things happen. Okay. You know, you're living in obscurity, you write the first album, it blows up. Then you have to write more songs. What was the pressure like?
0: Yeah, that was a good one in terms of pressure. I mean, it was it was just like, there's kind of a um, hypocrisy because people just love your first record and they just go, oh, you're such an artist. You know, we just love your mind. We love your sensibility. Write another one. So then you do and they go, well, why isn't that like the first one? You know, like the, the, then, and I'm not blaming other people for being, um, that way because they're that way with all artists. The thing that blows up between the artist and the salesman is age old. It'll never change. That goes back to your question about how's the music industry changed? Well, not at all. You know, um, but yeah, the second record was more us writing songs that were, that came out of being on the road and, and, uh, traveling and all this big concerts and stuff. And our, my personal experience, like the song Little Queen, I think has a certain sort of, uh, bitterness about it. Like, okay, you gotta get up there. No matter how you feel, you gotta get up there. It's almost like a Judy Garland mentality, you know? put on the nose, get out there and just do it, you know? Um, so yeah, the second album had elements of that, almost biting the hand that was feeding us, but not quite.
4: Yeah. But you had success with that second record. As long as you sell records, they don't, in retrospect, they'll stay off of you. But how much did they interfere with your creative process there at Epic?
0: Not at all. Not at all. I don't remember being interfered with at all. Um, we had the we had a combination in me and Nancy writing songs and Roger Fisher writing songs with us and Mike Flicker producing that was that was working uh, at the record company company level too. So they didn't really start interfering with us until the eighties.
4: Well let's wait for the eighties for a second. How did, right, it,
0: yeah. <laughs> how did how did it end with you and Michael? Um, we were living in, we bought a house together in Seattle, came down from Vancouver, um, and we were working on, uh, Babe Strange, recording in Seattle at K Smith, and, uh, it was revealed to me by other people that he was unfaithful, and because I was off writing songs with Nancy and Sue all the time. And, and I was, or I was in the studio. We, we drifted apart and he found solace elsewhere. And I wasn't the kind of person who could just turn my head and say, well, that's my fault. You know, I walked out. I felt not jealous, but I felt rejected. And so I left. That's how we split up.
4: But he was your first serious relationship, and you were betrayed. Oh, yeah. You, you can't get over that so fast. See, I, I didn't think so either. Like, I felt
0: that was a serious betrayal. I thought that maybe he, at the very worst, maybe he would tell me. But I, it got to this point where everyone else in the whole group knew except me. And everyone was trying to keep it from me because the golden goose, right? And they don't want to upset me or something, make it so I'd kill myself or stop writing songs or whatever. <laughs> but As it turned out, um, I found out and that's what happened. And I went into a real tailspin for a long time about that. I think it shook my self-confidence in a way
4: that was real deep. How long did it take you to recover from that, if ever?
0: Well, I didn't get into another serious relationship until I was 64 years old. So it took me 30 plus years to actually trust again. Um, But that's not to say I didn't have a good time in those 35 years. You know, I dove headlong into being free and individual and wild and... uh doing whatever I wanted with whoever I wanted for a long time, but not committing to anyone. So I guess you could say I didn't recover until I was in my sixties. And what changed? I met Dean. What was different about him? He's incredibly intelligent. Um, he's, he's like, uh he's like me. It's almost like we're two versions of the same thing. And he's, Got this spirituality that it's, it's really basic and simple and that I can really identify with. We both felt like we recognized each other. Um, that's about all I can say is like, it's just like this familiarity of someone that you just know that you know them and that, well, this is it. This is what it's going to be. It's so comfortable. It's, it's like, uh, something that where you know you're supposed to be. But he's, he's a lot. I mean, Dean's a lot. He, he's a beautiful, highly intelligent person, but he's complicated and sensitive and brainy and scientific, you know, a lot of, a lot
4: there, a lot there. So how do you cope between the two of you? You see, you have arguments, you see a therapist. How do, how do you, all relationships have these issues? How do you guys cope?
0: Well, he sees a therapist. I see a therapist. You know, I mean, our problems, we mostly talk out. Um, sometimes we can't because we're both so complicated and, and we'll just go round and round until the elephant in the room is so big that we have to, you know, um, and when we got married, we just kind of walked off together. You know, we, we didn't, we got together in November and we were married by April Um that was seven years ago and we've been together every day and every night since except for the four days he spent in the slammer over that White River deal <laughs> that happened um, but it's pretty intense how much total immersion we have together
4: now in the interim in that 35 years you have children correct? yes I do I do. So how did that, how did that come to be and what was that like? Well, I adopted both my children. They, I was
0: looking to adopt, um, because I was ready to have children. I just didn't feel that I wanted to wait and wait and wait and wait for Mr. Wright, you know, because I was in my thirties at that point. Um, no, actually early forties. So I went to an adoption agency and another one and another one, and they weren't really having it because here I am, this single woman in rock and roll, right? And they weren't looking to place babies. They were looking to place babies with two parent, upwardly mobile, stable families. So then it just happened that a young girl that I knew peripherally came to me and said that she was pregnant and she couldn't keep her child. Would I consider adopting it. So I had that happen twice. And both my children came to me before they were born. And um, I supported the mothers. They're both like 17 year old girls who had just gotten out of their depth, you know, and didn't want to be mothers yet. And um, so I supported them. Took them to their doctor's appointments. And then when the time came for the births,
4: I was there and, you know, had two babies, seven years apart. And what was it like being a single mother, in addition, working and working on the road frequently?
0: Yeah, well, luckily, you know, I took the babies on the road with me that uh, when they're little footballs like that, they're fine on the road. Um, I was able to get tour buses where you could childproof them, <laughs> you know. And, and uh, I think my daughter was with me on the road until she's about 13 when she finally said, you know, Mom, I've seen every aquarium and every miniature golf place in this country, and I'm sick of it. I want to be with my friends. And the same with my son, you know. They had great upbringing. They went to Europe and Japan and Australia. The- Australia and all over the country they had a great childhood and what are they up to today my daughter is 30 and she has uh, got 6 kids she married a man who had twins then she had 4 of her own and my son is uh, 23 and he's
4: uh, a corrections officer at the Monroe State Prison in Washington State And are they independent of you or do you support them financially? They're independent. Uh, They're independent of me. Okay, let's go back. So you're on Epic. You have a number of hits. How does it end with Epic? Let's
0: see. Um, I think it ended with Epic when we did the private audition album album or it might have been Passion Works, that was our first record that did not sell. The first one that was a commercial failure, right? And uh, suddenly we took this commercially, this big nosedive, and um, Hart couldn't really get arrested on the radio, which was, you know, as you know, which is how you did things back then. There was no MTV yet or anything. It was just starting up. And so eventually Epic just kind of went, well, no, we're, we're, we're done here, you know. And right at that same moment, Don Grierson at Capitol came to us and said, well, you know, I think that you guys could really be huge if you allow me to introduce songwriters to you. And if you take advantage of this MTV thing, and if you signed a capital. So we, we did that, you know, we were, did kind of a Faustian bargain with that, I think. I think uh, at that point, I wasn't ready to just go back to obscurity. I wanted to keep it going. Uh, and I liked getting all dressed up. I liked uh, singing. And so I didn't have any qualms about singing other people's material, it was just like going back to the beginning for me um, at first. So we signed a Capitol and made this record with uh, Ron Nevison producing, Dan Sausalito, and it went number one. And of course, the there were of the 12 or 14 or so songs that are on there, four of them or five of them were our compositions. The rest were from. Diane Warren and um, Peter uh, Wolf and Bernie Topin and um, a few other people, Kelly Steinberg. And so we had this huge success so we made three albums right in a row for Capital that that happened with. And we made all these big expensive MTV videos and 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 wore the big hair and all the whole kabuki setup. And um, that became a real trap, became a real uncomfortable deal. Especially when you try to take that MTV thing with all the stylists and take it out in the hot summer outside shed setting where it's 100 degrees and you're wearing this corset and this big, huge... Mane of hair and everything is just really hard um, to maintain that pose. And um, so at the end of the 80s, after we did Heart, Bad Animals, and Brigade, I think we were done with that. We just were, we were exhausted. And we went home to Seattle and just took everything off and just went, well, I don't know what's going to happen now but I'm not doing that anymore. You know, we'd gone about as far as we could go with that one. And then there was grunge and we kind of landed in the middle of
4: that. So all your hits previously have been written by the band, primarily you and your sister. Mm -hmm. What's it like singing somebody else's songs and having all the recognition for that?
0: Yeah, it's, that's a real um, double-edged sword because if the, if, if the song is a great song that somebody else has written, it's a pleasure, like the song Alone or These Dreams or one of the really well-written ones that has substance. It's a, ple- it's a pleasure and a joy. But some of those other songs that were just written for the radio, for the uh, 80s radio, like Nothing At All or Who Will You Run To or Never, those types of things, boring 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 and uh for me it was just like some kind of i don't know i'm i'm trying not to get too colorful here but some kind of mass masturbatory um meaningless exercise that i got real tired of and it wore on my voice because they weren't songs that i'd written for myself that i knew how to pitch you know um so I think the mood changed in the 80s for us and it was it was hard it wasn't exciting it was hard and commercial
4: and corporate how was your relationship with the label with capital it was good I mean
0: we spent time over there at the Capitol building in LA and went to a couple of the Wednesday morning singles meetings and, you know, played that game a little bit uh, back then because you get into this situation where they sort of ha- have you over a barrel. Like if if you don't cooperate, then they won't cooperate. If you don't do what's necessary, then they could just let the whole project sit and fail. Um, so pretty soon you wake up and find yourself just in this situation of powerlessness. And the realization came to me that like, God, what am I spending my life on this for? You know, this isn't what I got into this for. I'm only coming back to that now, you know.
1: savings products insured by ncua investment products are not insured not obligations of navy federal and may lose value
3: rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing right you got rain gear but you can't overlook sunny day gear a columbia pfg solar stream elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days like literally i mean who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish but why do it if you don't have to So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear.
4: Okay, needless to say, MTV is all about image. Yeah. And women are very concerned about their image. How did you feel about being in videos, in the focus, etc.? Yeah,
0: that that was really, really hard because it was big, big money to make these big productions that were like mini movies with stylists and catering and um, all these cameras and Big name producers and directors, and uh, it was a whole lot of work. And they, the videos are what sold the records in those days.
4: So it it worked. Needless to say, there were issues in the eighties with your body and weight. What was that experience for you? Oh, it was really hard, and and personal, it
0: got really personal and um, it was hurtful but I used to look at myself and go, well, you know, like I'm not following the rules of how you're supposed to be, so do I deserve this because I'm not a uh, o- uh, obeying the rules of what you're supposed to look like and I always came back to, well, yeah I'm not observing the rules, so maybe I deserve this Um I went through everything I could do, like you know every diet, every fasting, every thing you could do, but it it was just too hard for me to live behind. I think that's a lot of what changed the mood about it. The eighties for me too.
4: Now, ultimately, after the Capitol era, you do TV ads for weight loss. Yeah. How do you decide to do that? Well, I met these people who um, who
0: were willing to help me in my weight loss goals, and um, if I would speak out for one of their products, and so I did, and then they helped me. They
4: paid for the medicine. And where are you at with your body and weight and image it today? Well, you know, I, I'm i pretty relaxed about it.
0: Um, I really have spent so much of my life struggling with it that I it's just something that you can you can have it stop your whole life or you can realize that you can go on with your life and accept yourself radically and i think i've met just the right people like a couple of my trainers and stuff who have taught me about radical self acceptance and that doesn't mean just being happy to be a slob uh that means looking at yourself realistically
4: and and not through the eyes of pop culture okay so you and your sister wrote all these songs who owns those songs today owns um
0: i don't know about nancy about hers i I know that some of some of the publishing is with Merck. okay
4: i'm not sure how that's i'm not sure how that's going right now but so in turn in terms of your publishing, have you sold all your interest for a lump sum to Merck? Or are there are things that no. Merck doesn't own? So there are is, things that he does not own. So what does Merck own? 50%. 50%. Okay. And what did you do with the money that Merck gave you? It's going to be invested. Okay. How, was that a tough tough decision to make a deal with Merck? No, because because...
0: Uh, you know, we met with him and and talked a lot about about ideals and and um, you know how we're going to do this. That uh, like I didn't just want to sign it away or sell it; it
4: was just going to go into the toilet, you know. Okay, so if we go through the '70s, you're writing the songs, but revenue from the music business is less. We go into the 80s. The hit songs are not written by you. So you're making record royalties, which are not extremely high and split with other members of the band. So how's it work for you financially over these decades? Not in a bad way, because there's been
0: a constant tour going on. We've just, Hart has been touring and I've been touring as a solo artist solidly since the 80s. No, I mean... The, the beginning of the 90s just all the different forms that my touring life has taken my s- solo stuff stuff with heart a duet with nancy the more recent stuff with um the band i'm in now with uh that's like where the money has come from for god
4: two decades it was playing live let's go back to the beginning you have these big hits did you see any money
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Dump trucks.
4: And what'd you do with the money? Um Bought things, houses, cars,
0: and didn't be really smart with investments until just recently. Uh, but I never ran out of money. I was able to keep it just
4: at a nice level and have the things I wanted, but not be all lavish. If you didn't go on the road anymore, you have enough money to get to the end in the lifestyle you want.
0: Yeah, I think so now. I think so now, but you really don't know because you don't know what's, what's going to happen. You know, whatever money a person is able to put away could be just blown away if something catastrophic happens. So there's never a time when you're going to be safe, you know. But yeah, I think if everything goes well, I'll be fine. I won't have to worry. I can just go about my life. So you want to be on the road. I do, yeah. In fact, when enough time passes that I'm not on the road, I start to really climb the walls and I start to not be able to speak in a fluid way. And it's just, that's what singing does for me.
4: And you're going to do this forever till you drop or at some point you're going to say, you're going to hang up your shoes?
0: I'm probably going to do it till I drop or till... My children's children escort me off the stage and go, go out, go out there and get your grandma, you know, <laughs> bring her back.
4: <laughs> and when you're home, are you a reader, a TV watcher, a traveler? How do you fill your time when you're not on the road? Travel. Dean and I watch a whole lot of, um,
0: a whole lot of stuff HBO, Netflix, y- you know, boy, do we ever. Especially living out here in the country. Swimming, a lot
4: of swimming. So, what have you watched on Netflix that you recommend?
0: Um, let's see, God. Maravis Town. Uh, we're just actually finishing up watching Sopranos because I was on the road when that was out. When that was on TV, I never saw it.
4: Best television show ever.
0: Totally. We're just finishing it up now for the first time. So.
4: That I really love. Fantastic. the only yeah. the only sad thing is that Gandolfini passed away. Well, don't tell me the end of the series. I'm only talking about a real life. He passed away. The the guy. Okay. Okay. Because you also know that they're making a prequel with his son. Oh right. Cool. So it's gonna so it's gonna come out relatively soon. And do you listen to new music? Do you care about the music scene today or just pretty much self-focused? I got to admit, I'm pretty much self-focused
0: right now. Um, I think it's it's hard for me to, um, I'm such a word person, it's hard for me to get into the thought levels of people who are t- 25 and 30, you know? So that's the trouble I have With listening to n- new music It's not that it's bad It's that I've heard it before And I'm always trying to keep it f- Going out, you know Any regrets? Um, nah I think that one thing makes the next thing happen If I had to go back And make all those choices again Those decisions again They'd be the same I think one thing I would do, would, I'd be a little bit more careful not to be quite as much of a wild partier as I was in the 80s. But that's about the only thing. That's something that you grow out of, you know.
4: And the two songs you like to sing most. Mm.
0: Right now I'm enjoying singing Black Wing. It's a song I wrote for my new album. And... uh
4: I like singing No Quarter. Wow. Okay. And this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for spending your time. Obviously, you're still in the thick of it, making new music, going on the road. Thanks a lot for taking the time with us. It's been really great. Till next time, this is Bob sense.
2: It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.
3: This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX, now playing, and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This is Amy Brown from 4 Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen.